What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. Okay, you know, like at camps and stuff like this, you take the ball out. You ain't getting the ball back. <laughs> like, you the last one up the court. They already did their thing. So I stopped there, and I just got into a rhythm and started hooping. The Lakers should sign Trey Young this summer. They got to kind of start preparing for, like, if LeBron's last year is this year or next year, whenever it is. And I feel like a uh, pick and roll with AD and a guy like Trey Young would be deadly. Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. AT&T connects an ode to podcast. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk. Get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. Welcome to All the Smoke, a production of The Black Effect and Our Heart Radio in partnership with Showtime. Welcome back, man. Season two of All the Smoke. We got a real special guest. What's up with your Brody with the virtual handshake? I'm gonna tell y'all something that I never told nobody. I want All the Smoke. Welcome back. Season two, All the Smoke with our new partner, iHeart. It's a pleasure for me to introduce strictly just one of my favorite humans. Right, Uh, Former teammate of mine, good friend of mine. Uh, big fan of what he's doing off the court as well. Um, welcome, JJ Reddick. What's up, What's up guys? Thank you for having me. Appreciate JJ, you being here. Thanks in. for coming on, man. Appreciate you. Short I feel the notice same way about you, you, Matt. I feel the same way about hey. you. <laughs> my God, you're my a hell of a human. Fu- you're a hey, hell funny of a human. story. Like, and, and, and it really made me change my thinking. Period. When I, because I just, you know, JJ, you, and, and most Duke guys have this. Like, there's that stigma, of Duke guys, and you were the ultimate Duke guy. You know, all-time leading scorer, accolade, a list of accolades. But I, just, I looked at him, I'm like. He just seems like he'd be an asshole. And that's just what I thought. I didn't know anything about you, never met you. Teammate, uh, you know, ended up being teammates with you in Orlando, and it just completely flipped my thinking on literally prejudging someone before I met him. And I, I tell you, like in 2009, that was really my wake-up call because I thought, oh, this guy's probably whatever. Met you, one of the nicest, most humble, hardest-working people I've ever met, man. And it's an honor to call you a friend and, like I said, have you on the show today. We appreciate you. I appreciate that, man. I remember when we met, too, because it was uh, we were doing Jameer Nelson's uh, week in Philadelphia. He would have everybody yep. in August come to come to Philly. And you had just signed with us. 
And I probably had some preconceived notions of you, too. <laughs> Let's be honest. Let's be honest. I love and, it. That's what I'm talking and, and about. The first, the first night I roll in, and I, I was probably a couple of days late, uh, but I, I rolled in, and uh, we went to this sushi place in Philly, and I was like, yo, Matt is the coolest dude I've ever met. Like, I was, I was like, right away, I knew. I knew. I knew we'd be friends. That's what's up, man. Hey, for life. There you go. Well, let's uh, jump right into it. You got a chance to experience the NBA bubble. Um, I liked the safe environment they built. I like that you guys continue to keep the social justice message going and, and uh, you know, other things up that apply to that. But talk to me about that because you were someone, you know, who obviously were stuck in the bubble for a while, didn't have your kids, didn't have your wife. How did all that kind of mix with going and playing and being away from your family? Yeah, I think being away from the family was the hardest part. Um, you know, it's not, it's not really normal to be away from your wife and kids for basically seven weeks because, you know, we had to quarantine for two weeks in New Orleans. I lived with Drew Holiday when uh, his family stayed in California. So we were together for like two weeks in New Orleans and then we went to the bubble for five weeks. So just being away from them was really hard. But if you look, I mean, if you look at the, at the bubble, it's been an overwhelming success. Look, we've had high-level basketball. We've gotten all the way to the finals. There's been no COVID outbreak, not one whatsoever. You know, we had, we had some COVID positives on arrival. Since then, we've had zero. Knock on wood. Um, and, you know, I think the players have shown that we are going to be relentless with our social justice messaging. Mm -hmm. Some of it, I think, has been really powerful. Um, and, and I'm, again, I've said this a bunch of times, man, I'm just, I'm proud of my peers. I'm proud of our league and what we've been able to do over the last few months. The conversations that was going on, you know, inside the bubble, I know you can't tell us everything, but with, with, with me, I seen that some people actually didn't want to play at all. And some did like, was it, was it more on the side of, of, of just of standing not to play, or was more on the side of saying, you know what, hey, we got to go out here and play because our message is being heard more while we're playing. There was a few phone calls uh, prior to us going down to Orlando that I was on. I was on one call on like a Friday or Saturday night in June with, uh, with about 90 guys. Um, there were definitely a few media members on the phone too. I don't know how they ended up getting a call in for that, for that Zoom call, but... Um, you know, we, we, we talked about this and there was definitely a group of guys who felt like we shouldn't play. Uh, and then there was uh, an overwhelming uh, part of the league felt like this was an opportunity to uh, further messaging, to, to bring more awareness. Mm -hmm. Look, if we hadn't, my, my argument to that is like, if we hadn't played, what, what is taking over the news cycle? You right. know, it, it, nobody's talking about NBA players if we're not playing. That's not mm -hmm. how it works. That's not how right. it works at all. You know, we're going to talk about Trump being an idiot, the election, <laughs> and as soon as football starts, that's all anybody football. cares about. Mm -hmm. Football. So we're going we're gonna to have two months in July and August where we control the news cycle. And I thought, you know, the messaging early on was great. I thought some of the announcements were really, really important. You know, the, the, the social action fund that, that D. Wade and Mello and CP started, Malcolm Brogdon started a family foundation. Um, the league announced a partnership with the PA to, to basically invest $300 million in black communities. Like, those are real things. Mm -hmm. Those are things beyond just wearing a T-shirt uh, mm -hmm. or, or kneeling, in, you know, in, in front of the, the flag for the national anthem. Those are real things. Those are things that are going to have legitimate impacts 
impact in communities. Um, and then the stuff with voting, I think, has been great. I, I have no prediction for, for November 3rd, um, but I think the messaging that the league has had, that the PA has had, our players have had about just participating in this electoral process has been really important. And I think as we saw with the Breonna Taylor case, our elected officials are the people that are making the laws. So we mm, need to get the, the right elected officials in office to make the laws that reflect what the majority of Americans want. And that's what I talk about too when I tell people voting, it's just not on the federal <laughs> level, because just as yeah. you said, it's on the local and state level. You know, the, 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 the AG, the, the, the AD, the, uh, the judges, the mayor, all these are elected positions that, right. you know, come November 3rd, we have an opportunity to vote on. So that's why I've been so adamant about voting, like I said, not just on the federal level, but on your local and state level. Hey, can I just interject real quick? I just want to interject Please. real quick because I think people have a ton of questions about voting. And, it, and I was literally having this conversation with my friend last night in my kitchen. It, it's, it's one of the fucking most complicated things in the world. And there's so much uncertainty and clarity about all these issues and the, the, the rules are different state to state. I know you guys are doing a lot of stuff with voting. I just want to plug one thing real quick. I want to plug mm -hmm. Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com slash register. There's information on all 50 states. It's a two to three minute process to answer any questions you have about voting and to get yourself registered. Oh. It's the easiest thing. Oh. My, I, my wife hadn't been registered uh, since we moved to New York a couple years ago. I wanted to switch where I was re registered in New York. I did it the other day. It took two minutes. Like, please just yep. go votesaveamerica.com slash register. It's the easiest thing. Dope. And we'll definitely put that up, too, when we air this episode so everyone will know that. We appreciate that. With the NBA playoffs being what they were, um, very entertaining, very exciting. We're to the finals now. You got a chance to play with Jimmy. Um, talk to us about what it was like playing with him. And then when he left Philly to Miami, your thoughts. Yeah. Well, so I love playing with Jimmy. He's an interesting personality. And I think oftentimes with Jimmy, it can rub certain people the wrong way. And, and Matt, you, you and I play with CP and, and they're different personalities, but CP was similar in that way. Like if you didn't get CP, I could see where he would rub you the wrong way. I fucking love playing with CP. I love playing right. with Jimmy. Um, mm -hmm. you know, in, in my opinion, I wish we had just ran it back in Philly. Um, mm. but it was clear that they felt like they had to go in a different direction with both, uh, you know, him and with me. And, you know, I don't have horrible moves, yeah. both horrible moves, I, I, I both don't have horrible any regrets moves. about what my decision last summer. I didn't have any regrets. I, I had an yeah. unbelievable time in new Orleans. Clearly Jimmy right. has no regrets about, you know, his decision. <laughs> right. Like it's worked out. Right. He ended up in the perfect situation for him. Um, right. You know, he's in an environment that just like promotes everything that he's about. Mm -hmm. And and he can just be himself and be comfortable. And, and that rubs off because he, he does have an amazing personality and that just rubs off on everyone else. It's, it's been it's been awesome to watch. I give so much love to the heat on my podcast. Everybody thinks I'm going to Miami Heat in 2021. Like, it's not about that. <laughs> it's just about as a fan. Like, I just appreciate what they've been able to, to do. They never tanked. They've always been able to just pivot very quickly and maintain this, this winning environment and this winning culture. And when you get the right mix of players and the right mix of personalities, that leads to being a championship contender, which they are this year. That's interesting the way you put that, too, because Jack has a relationship with Jimmy Butler, and I've only known him as an opponent. I would ask Jack, like, what Jimmy was like, because I always kind of wondered. Sometimes he'd say some crazy shit, then I'd see him say some amazing things, and all I know that 
He played hard, and I, he, to me, he's probably the most blue-collar superstar we have in this league. Jack, what, what, what is your, like, what's your relationship with Jimmy? That goes back to Houston? Yeah, um, you know, me, me being a little older and him watching me and me making it, you know, he kind of looked up to me a little bit to the point where we got to the league, and I was, I was kind of a mentor to him because our attitudes and where we approach the game is the same. You know, a lot of people didn't understand me. They said I was this and I was that, you know, but one thing they couldn't say is I couldn't play basketball, and that was what, what me and Jimmy had, it, had, it, had it, uh, was said we had similar. We both loved the game. We both played with a lot of passion, and uh, I see a lot of myself in Jimmy. Jimmy's just a lot, way more stronger, way more athletic than me, but, you know, the way we approached the game is what we had in, in, in common, and uh, it brought us to the point where we have like a brotherhood now. We talk all the time. Time, and uh, I'm one of his biggest fans. Yeah, you bring you up bigger, you bring you up an bigger calves than him with just just a player's reputation, and and you guys know this because because we've all switched teams a number of times, mm-hmm. and so you're going into a locker room or a, a guy gets traded into your locker room, and that guy carries with him whatever whatever the book says that he is, right? Yeah, right. And I think as as teammates. In the NBA, it's our responsibility to give every guy sort of a fair shot and give every mm-hmm. guy a clean slate. Yep. And I've tried to do that throughout my career. I'm, I'm glad Matt gave me a chance back at 09. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm glad Matt gave me a chance. But, I, you know, it's funny because, like, you know, Jimmy carried with him this reputation from Chicago and from Minnesota. Yeah. And... Within two weeks of him being in Philly, I'm like, yo, I just, I'm gonna go hang with this guy. Like, I'm gonna go to every meal on the road. I'm with Jimmy. Like, it's so yeah. it's it's interesting how uh, reputation isn't always reality. Right. And I think both the, uh, both of you guys, because I played with Jack too in 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 in, uh, in L. A. with the Clippers. Yeah, Jack had I told a quick him. stop with us for a ten day. Yeah, uh, I, 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 told, I, I told him about that. You made me say. You made me sell. I had a conversation with you about a watch. I remember walking in the locker room one day. I just bought me a new diamond watch, Matt. You know, I, I'm, I'm, let, I'm letting it hang too because I want everybody and to he see shit, it. And he shit oh all my over God! It. Hey, JJ, <laughs> hey, he just quietly sits on the side of me and gets to explain to me about my watch, what kind of watches I need to have on, how much they cost, and how much my watch I had on hey. wasn't shit. I went sold them all real shortly after that. He's a watch dude. It made me feel good because I had a I had I had a watch that he really liked, and I wouldn't sell it to him. Then I ended up losing that bitch. I should have just sold it to him, but he really liked it, and I wouldn't sell it to him. Oh, I'd wear it around him all the time, and he wanted to buy it, and I wouldn't sell it to him. Then I lost that fucking thing. I, I heard the- you got rid of all your watches, though, JJ. Yeah, I did. Hold on, it was, uh, Matt. Was that the, the that was the watch that C Webb gave you? Yeah, yeah, I remember yep. that. I, that was when we played yeah, Orlando. I, I tried to get that watch yep. off you a few times. Yeah, Jack, I sold everything, man. You ever heard that? You ever heard the the uh, phrase "your possessions shouldn't possess you"? Yes, yes. I got to I've a place, those. man, with with watches where it was like a it was like an all consuming thing. And I, I, I mean, you guys have both been around me. Like I have an obsessive and, and an addictive personality. Mm. When I'm really into something, I just go all out on it. And and it's one of the reasons you know I've I've had a long basketball career because uh, that is my my first love. But you know, I got into watches so hard, man. It was just, it was taking up too much of my time. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where I'm like, yo, this is such a, this is such a selfish pursuit. You know, it's like, <laughs> no one's getting any enjoyment out of this except me. Like my, my wife's not benefiting from this. My kids aren't like, my friends aren't like, I'm the only person wearing the watches. Yeah, yeah. JJ, JJ, JJ was sleeping with them motherfuckers. He had to get rid of them. The wife <laughs> yeah. told him it's either her or the watches. <laughs> Yep. Growing up in Roanoke, Virginia, when did basketball kick in for you? I would say I, I became obsessed with it and, and like loved it 
when I was 12, 12, 13. So like basically seventh grade. And that was the year that I quit baseball. And I was probably better at baseball, truthfully, than I was at basketball at the time. But um, my dad kind of was just like, you don't have time to do both. And so growing up, like I was, my idols were my older sisters. I have older twin sisters. So when I was super young, they rode horses competitively. So I, I taught my, you know, I learned how to ride a horse. Then they started playing softball. So I started playing baseball. And then when they were 13, they were like 6'1". So they started playing basketball. They ended up getting a D1 ride to a small school in North Carolina called Campbell. So when they started playing basketball at 13, that's why I started playing at eight. And by the time I was 12 or 13, I was pretty good. And then I hit a growth spurt. Uh, I broke my wrist three times in six months. And when I, my, mm. my wrist was broken, I just shot one-handed. And from that point on, you know, I was a, I was a great shooter and I was, I was addicted. And the shooting part of basketball for me is, is the drug. I mean, seeing that ball go through the hoop, it's, mm. it's the drug. Absolutely. Um, obviously, a very decadated high school career. McDonald's All-American, uh, state champion, scored 43 points in the championship game. Th those are your Al Bundy days. <laughs> Recruited, you ended up choosing Duke. Um, what was it about Duke that, that spoke right to you? What was my Al Bundy days? You know, you when, when he reminisces about his Polk High days. Oh, I used to do this in high school and do that in high school, but you oh, really had you. the accolades. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, I, I, I was a Duke fan since I was like eight, since I first started playing basketball. And my first year of basketball was when they had, had won their second national championship against, um, against uh, uh, I guess it was Michigan that year. Yeah, because in 91 they beat... Uh, Kansas. So they beat Michigan in 92. And I probably watched that game like 20 times. Somebody had, had taped it on VHS at our house. And then it ended up getting taped over by the sound of music. I was fucking pissed. <laughs> I was so pissed. I had that game memorized for like two years. Um, That's dope. And so it was like, by the time I got to high school, man, like I was getting recruited by a lot of teams, you know, like UVA. And, and I was from Virginia, so UVA was on me hard. And uh, Texas, Stanford. Uh, Billy Donovan was at Florida at the time, and I was really interested in going there. But it was always a situation where if Coach K and Duke had made me an offer, like, I was going to go there. I, you know, it was, it was the hardest part for me was saying no to UVA because I did feel some sense of loyalty. My family had lived in Charlottesville for a few years before we moved to Roanoke. And, you know, I had some friends that were going to go to UVA. My, my best friend in high school was going to go play baseball and football there. So... It was, that was the hardest part was just saying no to them. But going to Duke was, it was the dream come true. You know, I, mm. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't really bat an eye. It was like, you have a chance to come. Here's your, you know, here's your offer. And then like three days later, I called Coach K and I said, all right, I'm, I'm coming. That's dope. I mean, with the rich uh, history at, at Duke with all the uh, All-Americans and, and NBA players, they turned out, you know, two-time ACC Player of the Year all-time Duke leading scorer. What was your experience like there? And, and, and tell us about Coach K and what it was like playing with him and what did you learn from him? I feel like I had, I had two chapters of my Duke career. And it was, you know, my freshman and sophomore year and my junior and senior year. And my first chapter was really hard. Um, this was the chapter that made Matt Barnes think I was an asshole. <laughs> and, and most of America thought I was an asshole. You know, I, I, you're, you're 18 years old as a freshman, and I, I, I you know, I played in, I, at that point, I played in a lot of big games, but it's never in front of fans. And you go on your first road game, and it's at Clemson, 
you're like 12 games into your freshman year and the entire student section is yelling profanities at you. I had, um, in college, my first two years, I had this like bad acne and shoulder acne. And so you, you see kids like wearing these mock Duke four, number four jerseys and they've painted these red dots all over their shoulders <laughs> and there's signs about your family. And you're like, holy shit, what did I just sign up for? And, you know, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not somebody that's gonna like back down from that. So then I sort of started creating this persona on the court and there was a lot of head bobbing, a lot of trash talking. It was it was a lot like how Jack played in the NBA. Um, only I was just a was just a fucking cocky white kid, you know what I mean? <laughs> so everybody hated me. And you know, by the end of my sophomore year, I was so distraught about it. And I had gone to a, a really bad place and had had misbehaved. I would say I misbehaved my sophomore year. I tried to quit. I told my sisters I wanted to quit. Like this was December of my sophomore year at Duke. I was like, I, this this is not for me. This is not what I, I signed up for. And I, I had basically a come to Jesus moment with Coach K in in late May of of my sophomore year. I guess I, it was after my sophomore year, somewhere between sophomore and junior year. And he sat me down in the office and he just said, "Look, man, he's like, you've been good." Like you, you know, you were all ACC last year and you were third team All-American. We made the final four. It's like, you've been good, but what you're doing isn't good enough. And Coach Collins, who's now at Northwestern, Chris Collins, Doug Collins' son, he said, I'll never forget, he said, the sad thing is we'll never know how good you can be. And I was like, fuck, that hurts. <laughs> that hurts. Mm. And that summer I had them make me a schedule to the hour, I still have the fucking spreadsheet in a, in a notebook in my house. They had me a, to the hour, you know, 8 a.m. wake up, 8.30 breakfast, 9 a.m. check in with Coach Collins, 10 a.m. class. And it was down the line, you know, lifting, conditioning, basketball, court work, study hall, lights out, 10 p.m. And oh, and I had to carry a jug of water around the entire summer. Mm. I had to have like a gallon jug of water with me at all times. Was that to replace the beer? Yes, it was to replace the beer, 100%. <laughs> if you guys want to know stories, I feel like this is the type of podcast where I tell stories yes. Yes. about yes. my sophomore year. But so yes. I was walking around campus with a jug of water. So I did that all summer. They didn't let me play USA basketball. They're like, we want you here. We want you in our environment. And man, it was, it was the best thing that ever happened for me. I lost like 23 pounds. I was... I was over 215 at wow. that time in May of my, of my sophomore year. I started my junior year at like 192. I was in unbelievable shape. I won every preseason conditioning thing our team had that year. And I got national player of the year my junior year and ACC player yep. of the year. We were, mm -hmm. we were undermanned squad. We ended up getting a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. We won the ACC championship, lost in the Sweet 16. Like it was, a tur it was absolutely, that year was the turning point of my life. And it was all that that jug of fucking water. That's all it was. <laughs> hey, what 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 was the uh, NC NC and Duke rivalry was like? Oh my gosh, I'll, I'm gonna mix two stories here. I'm gonna mix mix two topics. I know Matt wants to hear some stories. So the the <laughs> NC NC the the Duke UNC rivalry was 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 crazy. There was not nothing else like it. And you know, growing up a Duke fan, you have such an appreciation for that rivalry. And my, my first time playing in it was a Duke game at home against UNC my freshman year. And the crowd was just different. The, the, the buzz, the energy was just different. And you know, looking back, it, it feels like a game seven of a playoff game. And that's what a Duke UNC game feels like. My sophomore year, uh, we're playing, 
we're, we're, we're winning. We're going to win the ACC uh, regular season. We're the number one team in the country. Us and UConn, we're basically number one or number two the whole season. So we're going to win the ACC. And we're, it's the night before the Duke-UNC game. And it's game days there. So they got, like, the whole setup out in Shashevskyville. They got all the popping. tents out there. Oh, it's popping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm in my I'm in my dorm room on, on West Campus, and I have a few friends over. We we have a few beers or whatever. And so we get the idea that we should go down to Shashevskyville because that's where the party is tonight. This is a Friday night. It was a Saturday night game. So we go down there, and, like, I ended up playing beer pong with UNC fans. <laughs> My roommates running through Shashevskyville, screaming at people, waking them up, making them uh, take shots of Captain Morgan's. Oh my goodness! This is pre-cell phones with cameras. You know, this is right. pre-social media. Like so I would have got, fun. like looking back, like I would have uh, got kicked off the team. I would have been a rap. It would have been a rap. Right. How um, did you play in that game, though? How did you play in that game that night? Not, next night. Not great in the first half. Uh, not great in the first half. But I had a good second half. I ended up with 15 points. Uh, and and uh, made the uh, made the uh, made the the game winning defensive play, believe it or not. Oh, nice! We, we, nice. I, I stripped nice. Rashad McCants and then dove on a loose ball, got fouled, and and hit the game clinching free throws. Before we transition to the NBA, I wanted to touch on something because you faced it, you know, starting in college, and that's just the heckling you received. Um, and I'm sure some of it you heard white boy this, white boy that, and I know you heard it a lot in the NBA. And you were someone when I talked about the, when this Montrez Herald and Luca thing came up, when he said something about bitch-ass white boy, and I was one to say that that's very commonly yeah. said. It's said a lot. You've probably been called worse. Yeah. What was your thought when um, <laughs> that happened? Because I, I, I know you're someone that took a lot of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you, we used to mess around with you in the locker room and, you know, say you had black in you and... <laughs> All kinds of different things. So I just wanted to get a perspective, you know, you know, your perspective on that because there were so many different takes and obviously we're in a heightened sense yeah. of, you know, awareness of what's going on in the culture in the country right now. But what was your take on that? JJ wanted that shit. He wanted that shit. He, he welcomed it. He welcomed it. Yeah, he welcomed yeah. it. Yeah. J- I told you, JJ's got black in it, but go ahead, JJ. <laughs> no, I, look, when you play high-level basketball and you go back to AAU when I was 12 years old, I'm a white guy playing a, a, a black guy's sport. Like, that's just, that's reality. There's nothing like, I, there's nothing racist about that. The majority of great players in the NBA are black, okay? The majority <laughs> of great players in college are black. The majority of great players in AAU are black. I was one of the few white dudes on my AAU teams. Being called a bitch-ass white boy is something that I've heard since I was like 12 or 13. I laughed when Montrez said it. I was like, oh, shit. You know, I, I thought it was hilarious. But right. I also get we are in a time. It's a different time. Yes, right? yes, we are in a yes. time right now where yeah. everything is exposed and you know every little thing that's said is just so raw and the emotions are so high. So, you know, you take out the timing and I don't think it's that big of a deal, but I understand I understood the reaction to it, whether it was talking heads or people on social media making a big deal of it. I understand. But like I just don't think there's reverse racism. I just don't think that exists. Um, you can't say there's reverse racism towards white people. Like, white people in this country have controlled and dominated this country for 400 years. There's no, like, there's no reverse rate. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So mm-hmm. I, I, I just, I would say it's just normal on a basketball court. Like, to call somebody a white, you know, stupid white boy or bitch-ass white boy or punk-ass white boy, like, 
It's just normal. I've heard someone call you a bitch ass nigga, so I was one. Like I wonder, like if that's what he would have said. <laughs> I've heard it. I wondered if, if that's what Montrez would have said. Would people have tripped out if he said that to Luca instead of calling oh, him a bitch ass white? Because like I said, I used JJ in this example when I was arguing because I didn't hear JJ called everything. You know what I mean? And JJ shrugged mm-hmm. it off, whether it bothered him or not. I never knew it. He shrugged it off. We always had joke, you know, running jokes that JJ had black in him, all this kind of stuff. So I, I was interesting for me. I knew when we finally got his hands to have a conversation about it, I wanted your perspective because as I thought, just like I, th- I didn't think it was that big of a deal, but obviously the, the, the time and yeah. it's, everything is about timing. I think, and you guys have dealt with this too in your life, like words definitely have power. Yes. Um, I would say as athletes, we, are, we live in a high pressure environment constantly we 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 deal with performance anxiety constantly we deal with ridicule and critique constantly and so we're constantly barraged with words Mm -hmm. and you do you do grow like a like an insensitivity in some ways to the words that are being said to you and so the duke experience for me like you can't say i'm you've someone has said something to me or one of my family members, you can't say anything else. There's no other words you can use to talk right. to me. Um, mm-hmm. Now, when you talk about specifically the N-word, right, and, and the use of that, that's where it's like, well, it's all kind of off limits to white people. Let's, let's be honest. Like, that's not a word that ever should come out of any white person's <laughs> mouth. You know, that, that's, not a, that's not a word in, in the vocabulary, right. you know? Right. So that, that's where it's like, there's certain words that carry more weight, and that's that's one of those words. Hey, but I, yeah. I have to say this, though, and me being a real one. Where I grew up and some of the places I hang around is some white people that grew up and have the same struggles, grow up with the same problems that black people grow up in, where they become family. And I've heard some white people address black people like that because they're comfortable like that and the same, they've, they've, they've endured the same struggles growing up. You know what I'm saying? And and some of those black people rely on some white people that they grew up with more than they can rely on their whole family. So I've heard some white people say, what's up, my nigga, to people that they are related to. You know what I'm saying? But you have to come from these areas to understand yeah. that without thinking it's some racist shit. I think to me that's a case-by-case, situation-by-situation um, experience. Because, you know, in similar ways, I've heard white people say it and get a pass and, and be okay with it. But, you know, overall, I definitely agree with you, JJ. It's not something that, you know, should be in uh, a white person's vocabulary, but, well, you know, Matt, you and, I, you and I, we had a teammate in, with the Clippers who used to try to get me to, to say it to him. And I'd be like, nah, man. Like, nah. I'm not saying that shit. Nah. Because, like, yo, I, like, I, we're brothers. Yeah, okay, me and you are cool. But I say that, right. I say that to you around the wrong person. That, that word carries, that uh, word carries a lot of weight. Yes, JJ someone might slap the shit out of you. You got to yeah, watch so it. JJ, JJ, shit, JJ is sick, man. Fuck out of here, man. <laughs> he tried to slap <laughs> out of here. Hey, 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 DeAndre was trying to set him up. Watch out. <laughs> trying to set me up, man. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck DJ. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm not I, surprised. I, I, I'm not surprised <laughs> who that was either. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game, King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all, but I think I would have shocked a lot of people. 
I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe will win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, exactly. he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of that. Like that, see that. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. He's, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because it ain't it. <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative. The 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale 1 million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field, from free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. JJ, 11th pick in the draft in 2006. Someone who was a college star comes into the league scrapping and fighting for every minute possible. Uh, Year three, you guys run into LeBron. uh, You guys knock out uh, the Celtics minus KG. Knock out the reigning MVP, LeBron James, and face Kobe and the Lakers in the finals. What was that like being on that stage and only your third year removed from college? Man, some of the, some of the best memories of my career, to be honest with you. And, and that playoff run was really the turning point in my career because you know, I came out of college with a lot of confidence, and I, I got punched in the mouth my first two years. I really got punched in the mouth. And to the point where you know that summer... Between my second and third year, I had to re, like reshape my body. I had to, I had to basically redo my, my sophomore to junior year back at Duke all over again. And at that point, it was about survival, and it was about sticking in the league. And I, I remember having conversations with my agent that summer, like, what would, what would be options in Europe 
Like, how does, how does, how does it work in Russia? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? How does it work in Russia? Can I get a three-year deal? Um, so that playoff run, you know, I, right. I, I was finally like a rotation player, but there were still some nights where I got those DNP coaches' decisions, you know? And in that playoff run, Courtney Lee uh, broke his face in game five against Philly in the first round. So I started game six, which is, was a closeout game in Philly on the road. And I hit five threes, played really well. Then I started the whole Boston series. I guarded Ray Allen the whole series. And then got to, you know, we beat Cleveland. I got to play against Kobe in the finals. So, you know, that, that to me gave me all the confidence. Like, I belonged in the NBA. Um, you know, I remember distinctly, like, feeling in the Boston series, like, okay, like, this is it. Like, this is what I've been after for three years. You know, we're, we're in Boston and KG was hurt. And he's fucking screaming at me the whole game, you know, just obscenities from the bench. <laughs> and I'm like, this is what I want. This is what I want. Right. You know, Hell I don't want to be yeah. all, the way, all the way over there on the other bench, you know, in a Hell suit yeah. like I was for most of my first two years. So right. that playoff run was, was a life changer for me. And, and truthfully, like, we all have Kobe stories, and I have I have a couple like more personal ones. But when I'm like 80, hopefully I'm still alive. But when I'm like 80, I'm gonna tell my grandkids like I guarded Kobe Bryant in the NBA mm. Finals, mm, and yes, he got the best of me. But mm. I I had some stops. I had some stops. Check the tape. <laughs> Check the tape. Are you, now are you counting stops when you, when when he passed the ball, or you actually stopped him? Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on. Don't do that. Don't do that. So the following year, you guys you guys battle LA, fall short to LA. The next season, myself and Vince come. We have a you know a great season. You play all 82 games. I you know, you were one of our consistent guys night in, night out. I've always kind of had a feeling of what happened because you remember, if you remember, JJ, that's when we beat the shit out of Jack in Charlotte. We swept them and beat them by like 30 a game. And although Jack had yeah. a couple games where he got some points, we just I beat the shit out of his team. I was frying y'all ass, though. Y'all beat and the shit out beat, of us. Y'all beat the shit out of us. Beat the brakes off him. Then we, we destroyed Atlanta. And then correct me if I'm wrong, it, didn't we go into the West Eastern Conference Finals and Stan was on some shit like, the, you know, this is a very... You know, veteran-driven team. We're gonna have to switch a little bit of the offense up and completely fucking give our <laughs> offense a facelift. Or am I? Was I just smoking too much weed back then? <laughs> yeah, I think you've always been smoking too much weed. Um, <laughs> so, first of all, Game Four of the Charlotte series, we're up 3-0. Keep in mind, and it's like the second quarter, and Jack makes a three, and he's like. I'm still here. I'm still fucking here. Going back down the court. I'm like, man, your ass is about to get swept, man. Shut up. <laughs> Jack, come on, man. You guys had no chance. All right, anyways. Anyways. He's right. You're 100% anyways. right. So you're 100% right. <laughs> anyways. That's funny as hell. I thought, Matt, I thought 2010... Truthfully, was the best team that we I should That was the best team I, I played on the NBA. Even though we made the finals in 09, our 2010 team was the best team I played on the loaded, NBA. Loaded, man. Most mm. games I've won in the NBA. We had a stretch where we were 33-8 and eight to end the season, and then we went 8-0 and oh in the playoffs. So we're going in that Boston series on a 41-8 and eight run, beating the shit out of people. And I think, as oftentimes happen with really, really smart coaches— 
and really uh, detail-oriented coaches is that they can get ahead of themselves. So they, it was almost like Stan adjusted before the before, adjustment needed to be made. Before we had to. Yeah. Because then we, we beat them. We, 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 in the season series, we beat them 3-1, right, yeah. if I'm not mistaken? Yeah. So and we so played they, well against them. Yeah. And so they, you know, it was, you know, Tibbs was the, the defensive coordinator. It was all that strong side stuff, guy at the nail, weak side pulling all the way over. And Stan just felt like it wasn't in our best interest to run like a steady diet of, of high pick and rolls. So it wasn't that we were running there. like motion, but it was just more like side to side stuff. And looking back, like that's how everybody plays now, but it was like now. an adjustment on the fly that we had to make. And it just, you know, it, I don't necessarily think that it, it fit all of our personnel, if that makes sense. Like for me, it was great because yep. I was like, oh, I don't want to get in a wrestling match with Tony Allen you know, in, in a half-court setting. But if you get me on the move and the ball's moving, okay, now I can attack and close out and make a play. Right. So mm-hmm. it, it, it was a great series for me, but I think for a lot of our guys, they, we hadn't played that way the whole year. So we get down 3-0, we win a couple games, and then we lose in game six. And, you know, Matt, I mean, I know you ended up winning one in, uh, in Golden State, but it's like, you know, for me, I didn't realize that was going to be my, like, you know, 10 years later, that was my last chance. You know, that's that my last real chance that I've had. I, I, you know, I'm, no. a, I'm a, under the assumption, like, oh, no, we'll be back next year. We had, I think we had the best team in the league this year. We'll be back next year. And then LeBron Completely and Chris Bosh and D-Wade go to Miami. And, and then as they're transitioning out, all of a sudden the Warriors come along. And so mm-hmm. it's like those two years in Orlando where we had a legit chance to win, like, that was our that window. window and it was fast. Gone. That window closed it closed fast. Closed so it fast. closed really fast. You know that that I always say that was one of the most talented teams we had. A legit ten guys that were ready to go to battle to war anytime. We were too deep at every position. Stan was one of the best X and O's coaches I ever had. But I always felt like, and I remember when Shaq would say he would panic and get nervous. And, and I think you put it. Uh, more elegantly, obviously, I think he overthought the situation. We were adjusting before we even got into the situation. You yeah. know, I mean, we had success against them in the regular season, and we overthought our situation. And uh, yeah, you know, the one thing ugly. I would say though, like Stan, Stan, like there's no, there's no perfect coach. I think Stan probably had a bigger impact on my career than any coach I've played for. Uh, Doc as well, because Doc was the first coach who who let me be, you know, who looked at me as a starter and gave me more of a role in an offense. Um, but but Stan, you know, probably the best coach that I've played for in the NBA, you know, and 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 I, I, I hate that, I hate that Shaq had to say that about him or, you know, that we have to sit here and talk about this because I always did, I always felt like in a playoff series, I felt like Stan was going to get us a win. Like he was going super smart. He was going to make an adjustment or come up with a game plan in game three or game four or even steal one in game one. Like I'm going I'm to do this, and they're not expecting it. Um, and and it worked a lot of the time. And and he mm-hmm. he would always get us a game just because you know he was so prepared and he worked so hard. He took such responsibility on what he could control. And and he, he was great for that. His attention to detail, I've not, second to none as far as coaches. He was only thing I didn't like about Stan was our fucking taped tape shoot arounds with knee pads. I'm like, damn, Stan, we can't cruise. Like we have real, like, bro, we were taped with knee pads and shoot around. It was unbelievable. Hey, JJ, what what was Matt like as a teammate? I mean, Matt's <laughs> just the same guy I'm talking to right now. 
<laughs> you know? This is what I was talking earlier about, you know, reputation. Like, when people ask me, like, who are the best teammates you've had in your career? I'm like, well, Matt Barnes is definitely one of them. He was a great teammate. I think, you know, I saw this in Orlando, but it was a different group. When I got to L.A., the way that him and DJ uh, brought everybody together, like, mm -hmm. if you were the 15th guy on that team, you felt like you were part of that team. It did, there, there, was no, there was no, like, status on the team plane or status in the locker room. Like, they just had an amazing way of making every guy on that team uh, feel, feel special. And that was, I mean, that, that was, that's rare, man. That, that just doesn't happen a ton in the NBA. And truthfully, like, that was a lesson that I learned. And I've taken that with me now as I've gotten older and I've, I've I, you know, done the mentor thing. Like, it's important to just involve everybody because, you know, we get so caught up throughout a season, like, about what's going on with me. What's going on with me? I'm, I'm playing well. I'm playing bad. Whatever. And you got to keep in mind, like, there's, there's three or four guys every night that leave that arena pissed. Yeah. Pissed. Because mm -hmm. they didn't play or they were, they were in a suit or, um, you know, they got their run in the first half but didn't get their run in the second half. And so, you know, ch doing the check-in with those guys, man, is important. And, and I think DJ and Matt were always, were always great about that. We've seen the, how important Dwight Howard has been um, along, you know, it, throughout these playoffs for the Lakers. I think for the whole season. I, I said at the beginning of the season when the Lakers signed Dwight, I think this was his make-or-break season. He could be done after this season if he didn't come with the right mindset. But I thought if he came with the right mindset, he'd be a huge asset for the Lakers. And he's come with the right mindset. Yeah. What have you seen from Dwight now? And can, can you just remind people because how fast they forget how fucking amazing Dwight Howard was mm. when you played with him in Orlando? First ballot Hall of Famer. Yes. No far. question. Easy. Should, Easy. Should, have, should have won the MVP in 2011. It was the year after you left, Matt. But yep. he should have won. The year Derrick Rose won it, great story. And they, they were the number one seed. Great story. But Dwight was the most valuable person in basketball that year. Mm -hmm. He should have won MVP. Yeah, he dominated. Um, what I've seen this year is just embracing a role that so many people wanted him to embrace for the last four or five years. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really hard. We all had good offensive seasons, you know, the three of us. But when you're a superstar and you're used to the ball going through you, I think it's really hard to make that adjustment to being a role player. It's just, it's unnatural. And most of us had to deal with that at an earlier age, right? We, either in college or early in our NBA career, and it became about fitting in and maximizing a role and carving out a niche for yourself in the league. But when you start out as the number one guy and then 10, 12 years later, they're like, we need you to dial it back a little bit. That's hard yeah. to do. And so you, yeah. you've seen it this year. He's just completely embraced. Like, I'm going to defend my ass off. I'm going to grab every single rebound. I'm going to set hellacious screens. Be a great how teammate. Strong, how strong, hey, how strong great, is he? Say, and be a great teammate. And yeah. he's been a great how, teammate all year. How, how strong is he? People don't understand. That's probably the strongest dude I ran across in my career. Unlike a switch, Matt, it, it's, it's impossible to box him out. Yeah, it's definitely. impossible, and he, yeah. he he literally will toss people aside like a ragdoll. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. I remember one time, quick in in Toronto. I think me, Vince, 
Jameer and Rashad, he was shooting balls from half court like it was nothing. On it. He was sitting down, and we all he was just doing something. We tried to jump him. When I tell you, he threw all of us off like I throw the twins and Ashton off me. I was like, yo, this is crazy. This dude He's been like that since high seven. school, too. He's been built like Super, that since high school. Superman strong. Yeah. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter let's please welcome jamal crawford to point game king of the court one-on-one tournament if they had it back in your prime do you think he could have took it all i'm gonna be honest with you i don't think i could have took it all but i think i would have shocked a lot of people i think kobe and everybody in their prime kobe would win a one-on-one contest yeah I, yeah because you gotta think Love he's it. gonna guard he don't care about guarding he's gonna guard he's gonna exactly. guard like you see him in the olympics he's gonna guard and then on I'm top of that, like that, see that ladies and gentlemen please welcome sam cassell to point game i remember you came out from crying tears <laughs> crying tears. i mean he was in a culture shock and then his, he's going to withdraw us about winning remember what i told you i said i said oh you think i can get paid and go back and play in college because he ain't it <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. AT&T connects an ode to podcast. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Jack had a family emergency he had to tend to. JJ, it's me and you for the rest of the way. Um, let's pick off where we left off. I'm going to read some stuff to you just kind of about your career up to going from Milwaukee to the Clippers. So uh, 2009 NBA Finals, lost to the Lakers. 2010, lose to Boston in the Eastern Finals. First round, 2011, to lost to Atlanta. Second round, uh, excuse me, 2012, lose to Indiana. 13, Orlando goes into a rebuilding mode. You get traded to Milwaukee. What was it like for the first time in your career being traded? It was an eye-opening experience. I think every player, when they get drafted, they think they're going to be in one place their whole career, but that, that works out for, like, less than 1% of all players. <laughs> right. There's the the rare Nick Collison or Udonis Haslam of the world, but for the, for the most part, even superstars, right. they move on. LeBron's played for, you know, basically four, four, you teams. Know, four teams. So it's mm-hmm. like, it's really, it's, it was unrealistic. So I look back and I'm like, man, I was there seven years. That's a long time to be in one place. That's a long run. And absolutely, when that re- rebuild first happened, like I was, it was hard for me because, you know, I was so used to winning and so used to a certain way that that Stan had done things, and with a young coach with Jacques Vaughn, who, by the way, let me play. Like I, it was the greatest thing that happened to me, it, looking back. And 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 a young team, we you know we weren't going anywhere and. But I, I had said to Rob Hennigan, I had said, like, look, I'm happy. I'm comfortable in Orlando. My wife's happy in Orlando. She, you know, she grew up in Florida. 
her, her family lives here. So like I, I'm cool being being you know resigning and, and coming back for the rebuild. I was a little shocked that I got traded. Um, and I knew that it was a possibility, but like there were multiple times where like my agent had been like, "Yo, you're good, man. Deals off. Like this deals off. Like you're not you're not going to get traded." Um, and and so you know it was a situation where we're in Dallas the day of the deadline. Uh, we're flying to Memphis, and we pull up to the airport to the tarmac. Everybody starts getting off the bus, and Jacques was like, uh, "Hang back." And he was like, me, Gustavo mm. Arellon, Ish Smith, Josh McRoberts. And I think there was one other guy that was in a separate deal. So there was like five of us just hanging in the back. So I'm like trying to call my agent. And he's like, Yo, I, I, think, I think maybe this Milwaukee thing is back on. And then Rob Hennigan called me at like 2.59. Deadline was at 3 p.m. He called me at like 2.59. It was like, hey, man, you know, I just, uh, just want to keep you in the loop. You know, we, we've traded you to Milwaukee or whatever. And I was, it, I was, truthfully, I was emotional, man, because you know, I, I Jameer was up there on the plane, and 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 so many people, all the support staff, everybody that I'd spent seven years with, Joe Rogowski, and all these people that I'd spent seven years with, and it was a really, it was a, it was a tough day. But you know, I woke up the next day, and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna make the most of the Milwaukee situation. I had no idea, sort of what. What I was walking into in that Milwaukee, uh, in that Milwaukee situation, but it all ended up working out because. You know, because of that trade, I, I got a chance to really be a free agent, and um, Doc ended up getting traded as well to to LA, and it was just a perfect you know confluence of events that allowed me to get to you know at the time just a, a perfect spot for me. Like it worked out perfectly. So after leaving Milwaukee, um, you head to the Clippers. I get there a year before you. We have a very talented bunch. Uh, Doc comes in. You come in. You came in the same year as Doc, right? Yeah. Yeah. About two weeks after him. Uh, right. So we have it to me. Now, this is another team that I felt had the talent to win a championship. Yeah. Um, several reasons why we didn't. But what was it like coming to L.A.? So seven years in, uh, with Orlando, which you felt like could be home for the rest of your career. Out of the blue, go to Milwaukee, which is a tough place to go. And now Milwaukee's you're trading to fine, L.A. Man. Milwaukee, don't shit on Milwaukee. It's, I'm not shitting on them. I just, said, I just said it was five. tough. It's not even close to the top five worst NBA cities. Don't, don't it's shit on It's not? No. Who would you put in front? Oh, well, let's talk about this, Rick. Who would you put? <laughs> oh what cities are worse than Milwaukee? I'm confused. <laughs> Because <laughs> to me, they're up there. <laughs> I, I won't put you on the spot like that. So anyway, oh man, you, you, land, you, you oh land in man. L.A. And like you said, Doc was someone who empowered you as a player. Like you were one of our key pieces um, on the offensive end. What was it like being a part of, obviously, the Clipper franchise that hadn't had much success up to that point and coming in, establishing yourself as a, a, a go-to guy uh, yeah. for, one, for our team? No, it was amazing. It was uh, it was like an amazing part of my career because I was in my prime athletically. I was still I was still able to move all the ways I wanted to move, and and you know I was I was playing with other great players. And the thing that I think gets overlooked about our group in LA was just how smart everybody was. Like we we got to the point where we didn't really even ever call plays, like even set plays. It was all like hand signals and eye wings. Read and react. Y'all yep. would bullshit with me about different ways to call 21 when we would mm -hmm. call 21 and we'd 
call it, you know, whatever. We call it Chester after Chester Arthur, mm -hmm. the 21st president. Mm -hmm. We call it Dion or primetime mm -hmm. after Dion Sanders. Mm -hmm. And then one time y'all mm -hmm. started calling it Savage. And I had no idea what mm -hmm. y'all were talking about. And you were like, <laughs> no. 21 Savage. And I was like, who the fuck is 21 Savage? <laughs> Uh, but no, and it was like, so like the, the part about that, like the basketball was just great. And off the court, you know, I had, I had, um, both my kids in LA. I grew up a lot. I mean, I went from like a kid to a man in those four years and that was, uh, it was the best, I mean, it was the best four years that I could have had. I look back with, with that with, you know, a, a ton of, a ton of love. And my, my regret, man, is like, we should have won. Like one God of those first two, damn. my first two years there, like, you know, your last two years there, we should have won. We should have won. Like we, we, we should have won. There's no, we were, I think we were probably as good as anyone in 14. I think there's a chance we could have beat Golden State in 15, you know, as good as they were. Well, and then, they were young and coming up. Like yeah. they were kind of. And we had not to the year off. before in the playoffs. But yeah, we, you know, we were, we saw them in our rear view, but we felt like yeah. that was our window still. We had maybe a two or three year window. Yeah. We felt before it was Golden State's turn because we knew Golden State was coming. We had a bad, we battled in seven games in the 14th season. Um, and we knew they were on our way. In your opinion, what was it? Because, like you said, our chemistry on the court was incredible at times. Yeah. Our chemistry off the court was even better. You know, the way we all hung out, our wives hung out, our kids hung out. We did stuff as teammates off the court. Like, we really bonded as not only teammates, but friends and brothers. Yeah. But there was something in there that we couldn't get over that hump. In your opinion, what do you think it was? Well... I think there's a couple things. And I, look, I've talked about this before and I've used the word pettiness before or petty. You know, there was some pettiness between some of us. Probably if you look back and I've talked to enough of the guys now, like we've all matured even more since then. And we've, we all sort of realize what we squandered mm. by being immature and petty at times. Um, the The other part of that is you know, for whatever reason, I know you've said this before too, but the mental toughness, um, we just, we, we would lose that at times. And it, it, it doesn't make, it didn't, it doesn't still make sense to me because I think the makeup of all our guys, like I think CP is a champion. I don't know if CP is going to win an NBA championship, but in my, in my mind, he's a fucking champion. Absolutely. He deserves a championship. He's that caliber of player. He's that caliber of competitor he's a champion um mm -hmm. and, and so you know I, I, it's still looking back it's like it's th probably those two things where like you know if you look at the okc series the first year where we're up 11 in game five at okc and and we make some boneheaded plays down the stretch and, and don't really execute and and we didn't bounce back from that you know we, we go back to game six we're up like 19 in the second quarter and, and, and Kevin Durant goes on a run. We don't bounce back from that. Like, you know, the, the next year when we're, when we're in that free fall with Houston, it was just like, you could, you could feel it happening, you know, After, but for us to beat, but yeah. for us to beat the defending champs. Yeah. You know what I mean? We knocked San Antonio out in the first round. Yeah. Like this is our year. I think Clipper fans had the same feeling that year as they had this year. Like, okay, well, shit, this is yeah, this is Clipper. The year. This is the year that we're gonna do it, you know. And I really felt like that. And we get up three-one against Houston, and not really looking ahead, but we know Golden State is waiting on us. And those have kind of been like, 
I don't want to say little brothers because it was never that kind of situation, but they were on the rise and we were kind of the last team to knock them out of the playoffs. So we get to that situation. Houston sits James and they make a miraculous comeback. And like I said, it was just a domino effect after that. That game, <laughs> how many times have you thought about the fourth quarter of that game? Um, oh, and just the different, the different plays that, have, that happened. Josh Smith hitting three threes and Corey Brewer hitting a couple threes. And the, the other thing to, to think about that, and Blake and I talked about this one time. I remember that game seven. I was so tired. I, I think we underestimate how much that San Antonio series took out of took us. Out. Mentally and, and physically, yeah, though. And we, yeah, exactly. And we didn't have, we weren't that deep. So, like, no. you look back at those box scores from the Houston series and it's like 39 minutes, 45 minutes, 42 minutes. Our starters were playing heavy minutes. And I just remember that game seven, I don't ever get tired. And I remember feeling just exhausted, exhausted coming out of timeouts, yeah. coming, walking back on the floor. And Blake said the same thing to yeah. me. Um, but that, I mean, look, there's no guarantee. I mean, look, it was the Eastern Conference sem- or Western Conference semis. There's no guarantee we beat Golden State or there's no guarantee mm-hmm. we beat... Um, I guess it was Cleveland in the in the finals, but mm-hmm. I, I certainly think those first two years that I was in LA, like those were those were squandered opportunities. And I think we had the personnel. I think we had the right coaches um, to get it done. And it just didn't happen, man. It just didn't happen. Were you surprised to see that uh, the Clippers decided to go a different direction with Doc just recently? I was. I was. In some ways, Matt, like I, I would have been really as much. As much as you're you're like jealous of your your old team's success at times, you know, you leave a team and there's this period where you're like, man, I really don't want that team to win. You know, I don't I don't want I don't want the Clippers to win. You know, that this year for me in Philly, I was conflicted at times because I love I love Joe and Ben and I love Tobias and I love Brett, but it was like. I don't, do I want them to win a championship without me? No, I'd be pissed. But I got to the point with LA where I'm like, <laughs> right. yo, like Doc's the last person there from our group. And, you know, I think it would have been really cool. And I know Clipper fans, like Clipper fans need a championship. Like they deserve a championship. They've been Man, through so much. They definitely do. And, you know, so yes. I, I would have been really, truth, I would have been really happy for Doc and for Steve had that happened. And, you know, I, in, in in many ways, it's it's look, it's it's a results based business, and you know, I, I thought they were going to at least give Doc one more year, and uh, and just you know, play next year with with PG and Kawhi and, and the gang coming back. But yeah. man, it's it's uh, tough for him, and I'm sure you know. I know I've been on Hoopsite the last two days. I know he's got he's got suitors, and he'll, he'll, he'll got some big get, options getting somewhere. And one option is your former team. What was it like? Because. I love Philly. I think they, I think through management, they've taken steps back starting when they went, uh, you know, they decided to give Tobias with all due respect, uh, you know, pick Tobias over Jimmy. If that was the case, I don't know, let go of you. To me, they had a lot of talent and surrounded you with some dead-eye shooters. And that's normally the recipe in the NBA to win a championship. What was it like playing with those two young stars? It was awesome. Because both of them are are so intelligent and competitive. You know, if you look back at how you were night to night at 23, 24, like they just, those guys to me, like bring it on a consistent basis and they're fun to be around. I've said this before, but the one consistent in Philly has been 
personnel in and out. Like they just have a ton of players that come through there. And so I think, and Joe, Joe talked, Joel talked about this on my podcast. Like for him, he's played with, I don't even fucking know at this point, hundreds of teammates, you know, it's just a, it's a rotating cast. And so I think in the NBA, we, we don't really value continuity as much as we should. There's no two man, you know, game like Stockton Malone that goes on for 15, 16 years. Like we just don't see that anymore. Um, I, I would love to see them. Those are two young guys. They're both all NBA players. Like I would love to, to, to see them figure out a way to bring in uh, a coach that, that can get the best out of them and, and to surround them with, with great personnel. Yeah. I mean, can look, they win together? Can they, they win they, together? They Do you fu- feel like those two? They fucked up not bringing me back, man. They fucked up not bringing me back. I agree. I completely agree. I, I agree 1,000%. And yeah. that's what people are like. Like, you're not a star, but you are a glue, consistent guy that knocks down shots and you need that especially with those type of with those two players like you need someone that's going to give some spacing to the floor someone that comes in and just does his job night in night out and that's why i say i blame a lot of that it was that elton brand that took over as as the gm and he's been making these moves that have kind of been like hold on bro you were a player what are you why are you trading away all your shooting like what the fuck are you doing you're you're an inactive player i'm an active player so i i yeah you know i i think i would just say I think they 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 probably realized they they needed a little more shooting. The thing with me and Philly though, like it wasn't it wasn't just about the shooting. You know, it was oh leadership. You know, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, look, like you need you need people in the locker room. Like you just need those guys. And um, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm look I'm, I'm friends. Like I I st- I literally was texting with 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 Ben and Joe the other day. So like this so much of this is. You know, we, we don't consider the relationship part of it as much as we should. And we need to. It's, it's unfortunate, man. And I've said this before, you know, in talking about our days with the Clippers. Like, it changed after you left. You know, you, you mm-hmm. left after 2015. Like, our team our team wasn't the same. The chemistry wasn't the same. The locker room wasn't the same. And I know, look, I know you were older at the time and, and you, you, got, you got, you know, some coin or whatever. So it's not like one thing or another, but it, it hurts to lose, like, the vocal present, the leadership, your friend, like those things, those things hurt in this business and not mm-hmm. enough people talk about that, man. Like yeah. the, the makeup of a team on the court, on paper with this guy at this position, this guy, that's one thing, but the makeup of the team and how everybody, you know, coincides and, and works together, that's a, that's a whole nother thing. And mm. you got to have the right personalities. Like you said, that's definitely not talked about enough in today's game, but... 2019, you signed a two-year deal with a new, with an up-and-coming, one of, to me, one of the most exciting teams in the game. Um, you get a young, obviously young Zion, fresh out of college, and, and someone who I love, uh, the guy that won most improved, Brandon Ingram, and also get a, uh, you know, Alonzo uh, Ball. What has that experience been like? Now you're the old man in the locker room. What is it? What's that? Obviously, kind of looking, not necessarily looking back at your career, but yeah. it goes by so fast. Now you're the voice of reason. You're the old man with all the ice on you. What has it been like in that locker room with that team? Man, it's 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 been great, to be honest with you. This year, other than COVID and the bubble, my, my actual time in New Orleans was, was one of the least stressful, least drama-filled teams I've ever been on. Um, it's just a bunch of good dudes, man. And, and when there's, when they're good dudes already at 21 or 22, like I, I feel like if, if they, you get the right vets around them, you can really have a, an impact on their career. And, and, right. and look, that's, that's what happened to me. Like, you know, I, I was very fortunate that I was in great locker rooms in Orlando. 
and we had guys like Keon Dooling and and Richard Lewis and you like we had we had Vince like Vince, we, had good, we had good dudes Anthony Johnson, lot, yeah, yeah we had good dudes man so I think you think you think a lot about like your own legacy when you get towards the end of your career and like what it means and like how people are going to remember you and like I hope I hope I was a good teammate I, I truthfully like I hope Nikhil Alexander Walker's like yo that's my guy I hope in 15 years when that's he's you know he's finishing up his career and he's doing the same thing to a 22 year old he can say oh yeah mm-hmm. you know JJ took care of me when I was a rookie. And, and those That's are the things that, that you really think about when you get older. Um, and I would say this too, like, man, as a visiting player, you know, you go to New Orleans, you, you go, you fly in, you stay at the Rich, you might walk like a block or two to dinner. You don't ever get to experience what New Orleans really is. New Orleans is a special place, man. Mm. It's, one of, it's one of the most amazing places I've ever been in this country. It's so unique. The people there are just insanely nice and insanely great. And I, I think that was eye-opening to me. I, it was so eye because I didn't know what to expect. Because again, I had experienced one hotel and like right. two restaurants and the arena for 13 years. Mm-hmm. That's it. And then you, you, you're, oh man, they got, they got a, a jazz hall that's open almost every night. You can go see a brass band play at a random dive bar on a Monday. You know, you, Mardi Gras, my, my six-year-old is like, Still talking about Mardi Gras. That was in February. <laughs> Knox, what was your favorite thing about New Orleans? Mardi Gras. It's my best, best, day, of, best day of my life, Dad. Best day of my life. <laughs> um, Hopefully you didn't get to and, see some girls doing wild things yeah, for beads. No, well, there's, hold on. There's the Bourbon Street Mardi Gras, and then there's the uptown okay. family-oriented okay. Mardi Gras. Yeah, no, Knox, see, I don't it? know. You got you to gotta yeah. school me. I didn't know, I didn't know what you were showing yeah, Knox so already. I was so about to ask. uptown is like, you know, it's a different part of New Orleans than, than what we're talking about. With You know, okay. Knox was not out in the streets, man. Come on. <laughs> he wasn't throwing beads? Uh, uh Drew Holiday, one of the most underrated two-way players in the game. Uh, talk to me a little bit about him because he's someone you just don't hear much about, but he's put together a very solid, solid, and one of the most respected players in the game. Drew doesn't um, ask for or enjoy adulation and attention. He's totally cool just flying under the radar. He and his family are just incredible people. His wife Lauren is is a phenomenal woman. Um, they're they're just, you know, his brothers, him, his parents, like they're just they're just leaders. They're just great people. And you know, I, I think my biggest, my two biggest takeaways from my from my year in New Orleans was, thank God I got to experience New Orleans and and what a special place it was. And thank God I got to be friends with Drew Holiday. Because That's like up. like you, man, like he's somebody in ten years, fifteen years, whatever it may be, like we're still gonna be friends, man. He, he right. is he's just a an incredible human. He's a, an incredible human. You know, on the court, like he does so much and he does so much well. And I've talked about this a ton on my podcast, I've talked about it with the guests on my podcast, but seeing him guard the ball up close, one on one in person this special. year. It's special. There's no one that can do what he does. I don't know how he is able to just stay in front of people at the at the level that he can, and it doesn't matter. Like, you want to put him on Dame Lillard, great. You want to put him on Jokic, great. And like, we'll, we'll be like, we'll switch him on Jokic, and he'll be like, nah, don't give me help. Don't give like he wants that action, <laughs> right? And That's dope. Um, yeah, he's just he's just great, man. And like again, like another guy 
like we talk about, you know, having the right mix of guys in the locker room. Like he's just a special dude in the locker room, man. He's he's just a great teammate. What do you see, um, God willing, Zion stays healthy? Um, is there a, is, is there a limit you can put on? Him, because I don't think we've ever seen anything like him. No, there's not. Like it's 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 all NBA, All Star, Hall of Fame. That's that's his ceiling. Mm. Like it's it's he. The, the the thing with Zion is that he is naturally obviously athletic, but naturally skilled. And so when he learns sort of how to play the NBA game and wow, think the NBA people. game, mm-hmm. it, it's he's gonna dominate. Like he he does it naturally without even really putting the, the thought and the, 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 the sort of the, the preparation that we all learned. Like, I didn't, do, I didn't right. do this either when I was 19. It's a process. Yeah, it's a process. That's what people so say. I'm like, dude, this guy in year five and year six, oh, like, what are we looking at right now? He's um, twenty. He's twenty ten, and like you said, he's just yeah. playing off raw instinct and totally. ability and athleticism. It takes a good four or five years until totally. you understand the NBA game. So once he understands the NBA game, like I said, as long as he stays healthy... Ooh, yeah. And I saw that this year with B.I. and Brandon, you know. Um, mm, love B.I. B.I. in his fourth year, Lonzo in his third year. And you could see that development, like, where they're thinking the game and where they're, they're, they're learning, like, oh, this is where my advantage is. I can get away with this almost every night. And, and let me keep going to that. And, and so that's, like, to me, as much as we talk about skill development, that's where really great players, that's where the development happens is, is in thinking the game. And that's what makes one of our teammates, Chris, so great. Like, that's why he can play at the level he can at 35 as an undersized point guard. It's because he's Absolutely. so smart and he thinks the game. Old man in the three-point podcast. Um, what has that experience been like? Because uh, you started that, you, you started doing, you yeah. stepped in the podcast game in 2015, and I didn't even know what a podcast was. I remember you interviewed me, I think, right after I left the Clippers. Yeah, yeah. And I just like, what, what, what is this, JJ? And he said, it's a podcast. <laughs> and like, you've kind of, so you're almost a veteran in the game now. Obviously, yeah. just stepping away and starting your own platform, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you. After a good run with the Ringer. Yeah. What has that experience been like for you? It's been awesome, man. Um, you know, I, I, I started, uh, I guess, like almost five years ago, you know, with, with my first podcast uh, with Yahoo!, and did three years with the Ringer. Um, obviously, I left on good terms with the Ringer and with Bill. I was very transparent about what we were trying to do in terms of just owning the, the podcast and owning the IP and owning the platform. Um, you know, so much of what we're trying to do as players now is is just ownership. You know, it's, it's oh. about it's about owning what we do, and um, and so it's been fun. But it's been it's been a lot of work, and we're we've been on a two episode streak now. F- for uh, over two months, like where we're doing two episodes a week, and mm. you know we're doing calls on on um, on IP stuff, on trademarks, on merch, you know. So your hands in on all that, all of it, man. And Tommy, Tommy, my my co-host and and, and my partner on this on this venture uh, is obviously on, on it with me. We're, we're uh, hopefully getting ready to to hire someone to to help us just with logistics or whatever. <laughs> but it's fun, man. And like, look, we we talk about like. You know, being basketball players and 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 simultaneously like co- being content creators, like we're, we're we're I'm doing three hours of content a week. Like I never thought I'd be in this situation. The thing with Old Man and the Three, uh, our, our our new podcast, it's been amazing. Is just the, the guests that we've gotten, and so much of what makes a podcast great. You got to be a good host or whatever, but you need great guests and. 
Uh, I think because I'm like, I'm not traditional media and this is how you, you and Jack operate too. Like, because y'all are not traditional media, like Alan Iverson will come on your show. D Wade will come on my show. Kevin Durant will come on my show. You know, let their walls down, let their guard down. We we're, you know, we're releasing an episode tomorrow with Mello. So like, these are, these are people that like guys don't necessarily get to hear from other than Mm -hmm. the, the, the post game quote or the, the stuff that they're putting out on their own, which is all, you know, whatever. This is this is a, like a real conversation like we just had just now. And it, and that's, I think, what is the most enjoyable thing about podcasting for me is just the long-form content. You can really dive deep on stuff and uh, and get a glimpse into, into somebody's psyche, into their inner workings. Like, it's, it's just fascinating to me. I tell people, like, we've, as athletes, we've been trained our whole life to give it all physically. And obviously some mental comes with that, but I think my transition to my post-career having an opportunity to work with ESPN, having an opportunity to work with Showtime and iHeart, this mental exhaustion is a fucking monster. Like, I'm finished after, you know, I have to host a few podcasts or I have to do a bunch of stuff on ESPN. And it's a whole different kind of tire than on top of that, I still got to chase my kids around. You have to do the same thing. But it's different. And I have a whole new respect for this lane because I got to do it at the highest level and physically exhaust everything I had in my body as a professional athlete and now transitioning into this media space, this mental wear down and mental exhaustion is just different. And it, it like, it'll literally put you to sleep. Like it's, I'm I There's done. some days I'm with you. There's some days I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like grasping for air. I am like trying to come <laughs> up out of the dirt just to get a breath. And, and some of that too, I mean, if you're a parent and you're, you know, you're an active, involved day to day. Like I'm with my kids, and we're we're doing stuff. I'm taking them to school. I'm picking them up from school, and you're sort of managing that. And then you're managing, you know, for me as a, as a still an active player, like you're managing that part of playing. And then you're also there's this mental fuckery that happens every day where you're like, all right, you know, I, I didn't anticipate having to answer 20 emails every single day, nonstop for the last two months. Like I didn't anticipate that three, four conference calls a week. Like I, I didn't anticipate that. I thought I was just gonna, all right, you know, just give me the guest, I'll do the interview. And so that part of it actually, as exhausting as it's been, has been super fun because you do feel like- Cause you enjoy it. You yeah, still enjoy you're, it and you're, oh, and you're learning. Like, you're owning it and you're building it. And it's, 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 it's a total learning process, totally. I'd, I never mm-hmm. knew some of this stuff before, and so it's been, it's been really awesome. How do you feel like this, this side of, obviously, podcasting has kind of helped you find your footing in your voice? Because, you know, it's no secret you have maybe a couple years left in the game until yeah. you feel like you want to step away. But find your voice post-career, but then also find your voice in this social justice space because you've been very adamant and, and spoken very eloquently about things that are going on in this country. There's only so much that you can express in a coherent way on Twitter. Um, And so allowing or or using the podcast, you know, even going back to 2016, uh, when I talked about uh, Colin Kaepernick, I had William C. Roden on, who was a longtime sports columnist for the New York Times, uh, who wrote the book, The $40 Million Slave, talking about professional athletes like, Talked about Kevin Durant leaving the Warriors then, said there was some, a little bit of the visceral reaction was tinged in, in some form of anger at a black person taking control and ownership of his career. Still stand mm-hmm. by that today. Like, I, I've used this platform, I think, 
in a good way. Because I, I like my my podcast is not about silly jokes and shit. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna be dry and sarcastic, and we'll probably have a laugh or two. But like, I, I want this to be something that you get something out of that, that it provides Absolutely. some insight behind the curtain and absolutely and when all this this stuff started happening whether it was covid initially you know we were we talked a ton about covid we talked about some of the the mandates and 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 being serious about that now we're on voting you know and so were you and so it gives you an opportunity to speak out and 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 right and and talk in a coherent way where twitter is just a bunch of people shouting at each other and and it's it's not a real platform it's just an echo chamber um And so, you know, I, I think, too, it's like when we had Cuban on uh, the podcast, like I asked him things that he's an independent. He has no party affiliation. And, and to get his perspective on things, it was it was great to hear. It was eye opening. I think mm-hmm. I think that's the thing with the podcast is you can constantly learn. Um, when we had Taylor Rooks on the podcast, she said a couple of things that were like, never heard that before. Great. Unbelievable yeah, insight. That's dope. Um, Hell yeah. Yeah. So that's 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 what I think I've enjoyed the most about it is just. You know, I, as, as basketball players, the best basketball players are, are students of the game. They're constantly learning. And so as human beings, like, why would we not have the same responsibility? You know, we, we, we should be lifelong learners. And, and the podcast is a great platform to do that. Absolutely. Top five shooters of all time. You can include yourself or you cannot include yourself. Steph, Clay, Ray, Reggie, Kyle Korver. Okay. Or where are you? Do you put yourself? I know you don't like talking about yourself. Where do you put yourself? Are you top 10 in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, look, you talk about efficiency and volume. I'm top 10. Yes. I'm top 10. Okay. I like that. Your dream starting lineup with players you've played with over your career. Tough. Um, I'm going to, so all prime, like prime Chris Paul. Yes, prime, yes. prime everybody. Okay, so prime Chris Paul, prime Vince Carter. Ooh. Uh, prime Blake Griffin. Ooh. Prime Dwight. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Dwight, the Dwight or Joe argument's tough. Um, then it's like, because Chris is so good, I'll just throw Ben Simmons in there, man, honestly. I was going to say like Prime, that. Rashard, or Hedo, but I'll throw Ben in there. I'll mm. throw Ben. So Ben, Chris, Prime Vince, Prime Blake, Prime Dwight. And uh, six-man mm, Joel Embiid, no doubt. JJ Reddick, we appreciate your time, man. Thank you. Continued success. Give my best to your family. Uh, good luck next season, man. Uh, looking forward to you guys uh, making your, uh, your introduction to the playoffs with that young team. And uh, I'll catch up with you, my man. Thanks, guys. All right. All right, Matt. All right, good to see you. All right, that's a wrap. All the smoke with our guest, J.J. Redick. You can catch this on Showtime Basketball YouTube and iHeart. See you guys next week. This is All the Smoke, a production of The Black Effect and iHeart Radio in partnership with Showtime. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories.